Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Jonah Furman talks to us about the Labor Notes Convention. We talk about organizing the South with Virginia educator Patrick Corte and a cook, Sakia Royal, in North Carolina. Scott Herrick from Unionly joins later in the program and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, folks, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We're anywhere you can find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, newly on TikTok, wherever you find your podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, or become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. Reach out to me for more details on that. We would greatly appreciate it. So, folks, um, we're not here right now. We're actually, this is crazy, crazy stuff we're doing, time travel crazy stuff we are not here we're in chicago we're in chicago illinois for the labor notes convention really really excited about it and uh, so we have pre-taped today's program on uh, uh earlier in the week and uh so we figured it would be fitting to kick off our show that we pre-taped because we're going to be at Labor Notes, we figured it would be fitting to kick it off by talking about Labor Notes, by talking about the convention. And so our first interview today is with Jonah Furman, a staff writer at Labor Notes and uh, a person who is doing a lot of work to put together this convention. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get right into it. Play that interview with Jonah Furman. Uh, so I've got with me Jonah Furman. Jonah Furman is a staff writer for Labor Notes, and he is currently 
busy as a bee putting together a convention for labor notes to which 4,000 union members and workers, labor activists across the country are going to be attending in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Jonah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I I know that you're really busy, so I I really do appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely. Adam and I are are extremely excited as well. I have been uh, preparing all day, um, mostly by washing my car that I have not washed in years since um, (laughs) we're going to be having a caravan up there and I'm the one driving. So I figured I should like clear out the trash and everything. (laughs) But uh, a good organizer's car is always messy. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's not even necessarily because I'm doing organizing stuff it's just that i eat a lot of fast food and uh i just throw the bags in the floorboards <laughs> so uh jonah talk the talk to us first about i guess before we get into the convention give me just a just an elevator pitch labor notes what is labor notes sure yeah labor notes is a we call it a media and organizing project it's been around since 1979 and it's basically half journalism about the labor movement from the bottom up, from the perspective of members, especially members who are pushing their unions in a direction of more strikes, more inclusion, more union democracy, challenging the status quo. And then the other half is the organizing side, which is trainings and connecting people, building networks, member to member networks in the labor movement that can, you know, create organization that can push the labor movement to do more to be more democratic, to be more militant, and to connect member to member, shop steward to shop steward, local president to local president, connect people across unions, across industries. So those are the two big things we do, and we've been doing it for 45 years, and have you know managed to create something like a different pole in the labor movement, right? So something that's pushing against the status quo and putting forward a different vision of how our unions can operate. I, I And I think y'all do an excellent job at that. Uh, I think looking back at, say, the John Deere strike in a similar way that Kim Kelly has kind of become the national face of or, or a, a national voice on the mine worker strike, I think that, that you in particular, and, and, and then by extension Labor Notes, uh, were kind of a national voice for the John Deere strike, and I think that was very important, and, and, and y'all did a lot of good stuff there. Um, a lot of good reporting on issues with the carpenters up in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, just any, any you know, kind of really important labor issue, y'all are generally speaking on top of it and, and doing the reporting and storytelling in a way that, that not a lot of people are, which is to talk to the workers and kind of see what they have to say. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that, that's a really... Yeah, totally. I mean, I think those are... Those are two good examples of sort of what makes Labor Notes different is we'll tell, we'll help people tell their stories and we'll listen to the rank and file members and see what they have to say. But then we'll bring them in if they want to get connected with other workers or they're going through a situation they're trying to figure out, you know, John Deere was a situation where you had members voting down the contract over and over. So they weren't going to the union for how can I vote down my contract better? How can I organize for this? So now at our Labor Notes conference, for example, we have Seattle Carpenters and John Deere Strikers who are 
coming out to keep deepening not just mm-hmm. their storytelling and their reporting, but deepen their organizing skills and connections with workers uh, across industries, usually, again, who are challenging their unions to be better, be more militant, be more inclusive, be more democratic. Why is it important? And, and then and then we'll have a good segue into the convention. Why is it important that unions be more militant and democratic? Why is that something that working people that are listening on the radio right now um, that are in unions or not in unions? Why would it be that I would want the labor movement to be more militant and democratic? Well, obviously, you know, for even people not in unions, stronger unions have important social benefits, right? So you see, like, stronger unions with more members of unions in society as a whole means less income inequality. It means bigger social safety net means, you know, just in general, it trends towards things that help people, even if they're not in a union. So, you know, why would you need to push on the unions to do more is because in the U.S., as people probably know, the union movement has been in decline or stagnation for at least 40 years, you know. Uh, So the status quo in the union movement, just like we see in politics, just like we see in a lot of parts of our lives, the status quo has been falling apart for unions, for most unions, for many decades. And what it's going to take to turn things around is in part, those members of those unions demanding more, pushing their unions to change course, organize more, strike more. Specifically, militancy, you know, we can't have a union movement that's just playing defense. You have Mm -hmm. to be not scared to fight for what's right, fight for what you deserve, to strike when it comes down to it, to, um, you know, to organize new shops and not just defend the shrinking shrinking slice of the pie. So that's that's sort of the big picture context is we've had a union movement in this country that has played defense and not played great defense for many decades. Not not every union, not every industry, but that's the the broad trend and mm-hmm. we support people who are trying to turn that around by challenging the unions to do more than they're currently doing cuz you know, and we think the knock-on effects of that you know, are are important for all workers, even if you're not in a union. And so this convention, what is it doing to, uh, you know, what is its general purpose as a convention and, and, and how is it going to be furthering those goals? Yeah. So, I mean, the overview is we, we gather every two years. This is the, actually, this one is the first one in four years because of the pandemic. We had to cancel in 2020. But we gather every two years, and for example, this time around, we have 4,000 attendees who will be from unions of every industry, from every state, several countries will be represented, uh, and they'll have over 250 sessions and workshops and meetups that are everything from training on how to bargain a union contract to meetups across the auto industry to uh, panels about, you know, we have panels on how the John Deere strike went, how the Starbucks workers are organizing. So a lot of it is just about connecting the people who are looking for a better labor movement, helping them find each other, talk to each other and learn from one another. A big thing we believe is, you know, people learn from, you don't look up for guidance. You look side to side, you look to your fellow members 
And a lot of what we do is just put people in a room where they can get some of the skills and have some of the conversations that they're looking for as they push for a stronger labor movement. Mm-hmm. And, and I would, looking at, you can find the conference agenda on their website now, labornotes.org or .com? .org. .org. Labor not, labornotes.org. And just from some uh, some of the panels that I have knowledge of now, uh, not having set my own personal itinerary yet, I'm facilitating a panel on organizing the South. Who is it that Labor Notes has pulled together uh, for me to facilitate a com- conversation between? It's not between, it's not between uh, the international president of, you know, a million workers who's been off the shop floor, potentially his whole career uh, or her whole career or has been off the floor for a really long time, even though, you know, there, there's there's certainly something to be said for talking to, to international presidents. But who is it that I'm speaking to? I'm speaking to a Amazon worker, an Amazon worker in Alabama, an Amazon worker in North Carolina, both of whom have been involved in the organizing campaigns. I'm speaking to a municipal employee in North Carolina, member of UE Local 150, and I'm speaking to a Virginia teacher, uh, member of the Virginia Education Association, about organizing the South. There are There's a panel that I am interested in going to, host facilitated by Dave Camper, about being on strike with workers who are currently on strike. Um, there's a a federal worker meetup that I'm excited to go to as a federal employee, which is literally just going to be a meetup of federal employees talking about their jobs, talking about how they're organizing, talking about what's not going well in their organizing. And it's 4,000 people that are really, really excited about doing this kind of stuff and really dedicated to this kind of stuff and to the organizing and to each other and to the working class. It's just I'm incredibly, incredibly excited about it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to bring out what you're talking about, you know, we have a book called Democracy is Power, and that's one of the things we talk about the most is union democracy. And that doesn't just mean getting the right to elect your leader, you know, of your international union, although that's important stuff. It really means having a culture where the worker on the shop floor, on the front line, the worker who lives the job has the knowledge to decide what should happen in their union and in their workplace, right? So Mm -hmm. what we believe is we certainly are glad to have international presidents. We're glad to have local presidents. We're glad to have, you know, people with, with some sort of official positions but really, this conference is all about the knowledge and skill and, uh, you know, inspiration of the member, the, the, the rank and file member who we believe as an organization is empowered to make decisions, should has, has specialized knowledge that should be shared and can find answers to their organizing issues in each other. Don't need to look to an expert necessarily. Don't need to look to an official leader necessarily just need to get together and have confidence in the idea of democratic unionism where members really do get to decide what happens. So that's the spirit of the thing. That's why we focus on having members speak about their experience and not necessarily someone who's been on staff for 30 years, just because, you know, they've been trained and paid to do it. We believe that rank and file members are the ones who have that, that special insight 
Um, and we also believe that's not brought up, you know, enough elsewhere. It's just not what we do in our society. We, we don't give rank and file workers control over their destinies and we don't put them at the front of the room and we don't listen to them. So that's part of what we try to do at Labor Notes. What are some of the things that you're looking forward to most at the, uh, at the convention, any particular panel or meetup or um, anything like that, that, that you're particularly excited about? Oh man, that's really hard to choose. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, we, we have the conference every two years and there's sort of exciting big events that happen every time. We have a lot of important speakers that are exciting. Uh, but the things I really am thinking about are what we do between the conferences. So we have, mm. you know, we've been building a network of shop stewards who have these online trainings every month. I'm really excited to see how many of these shop stewards can show up and get connected to one another and what they're going to build over the next two years between our next meetup. The industry meetups are really exciting to me. We've had a lot of labor notes conferences where you'll have people meet up in a certain industry. And then between the conferences, they say, let's keep talking. Let's keep working with one another. Let's build something that can move our union. So I'm really excited to see, you know, it's, it's going to be a great weekend, but what it's really all about for me is, what can we, what's going to come out of this? What seeds are we going to plant that are going to bloom over the next two years and how can we help that happen? Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of the big headline stuff is we're really excited to have Senator Bernie Sanders speaking on Friday night. We're excited to have the president of the Teamster, Sean O'Brien, Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants will be here. Uh, Stacey Davis-Gates from the Chicago Teachers Union, Chris Smalls mm -hmm. from the Amazon Labor Union, Michelle Eisen from the Starbucks Workers. So we really do have a good group of leaders that we're honored to have there. But for me, it really is all about what's going to happen, you know, even just over beers. Who's going to connect to one another? What organizations will they form? What fights will they be inspired to keep going over the next two years before we meet again? Some of this stuff is going to be live streamed. I think uh, whatever it is that Bernie Sanders is participating in, and 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 there there's a main session I, I believe every night that's going to be live streamed, and this is going to be airing on Saturday morning, and so uh, some of it will have already happened. Um, where can people watch the live stream live, and then afterwards, will you be able to go back and watch it, even if it's not live? Yeah, I think if you go to our website, labornotes.org, you'll find a sign-up to get the links to the live stream. But you can also just check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. So any social media you use, I think we just started an Instagram account. So if you use social media, we will likely have our stuff uh, shared You know, at the time, uh, at that point. You'll see our schedule. We're live streaming about seven sessions from Friday through the day, Saturday morning and afternoon, and then Sunday afternoon. Uh, and everything from, you know, we'll have speakers on the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and Juneteenth. We'll have Bernie Sanders, of course. We'll have Sarah Nelson talking about strikes. So you can check out our full program. I would recommend people check out our social media. On every platform, we're just labor notes, just how it sounds, L-A-B-O-R-N-O-T-E-S. And you can catch us there. Um, yeah. All right. Jonah, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Really looking forward to uh, getting together with 3,999 of my fellow workers uh, talking about how to, how to make the world better. How many people were at the 2018 convention? 
It's a good question. Something like 3,000. So if we continue on this trajectory, you know, we're, <laughs> we're going to explode. This was the first year I'm aware of that we had to strictly cap attendance. So, you know, if you know of a venue that can hold 6,000 people in 2024, we should talk. Well, we just in, we just finished building an amphitheater in Huntsville. So. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we need a Huntsville conference. Yeah, <laughs> true. Jonah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for everything you do, and I'm excited to see you this weekend. All right. So let's go ahead and head to a break really quick. We'll be right back. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. 
Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, feel free to give us a call, even though this is a pre-tape. We're recording it. We are not live today. But you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail right now. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We are going to jump right into our interviews with two of my four panelists that I'll be talking to at Labor Notes at the Labor Notes convention I am facilitating a panel on organizing the South. Very important thing to do. So we figured, hey, since we're not going to be doing it live, uh, uh, doing the show live, let's talk to some of the panelists that we've got, that I have at the Labor Notes Convention. And so that's what we did. And so the next two interviews that you hear is going to be first with Patrick Corte. He is a history and social studies educator in Richmond, Virginia, a member of the Virginia Education Association, the Richmond Education Association, and the Virginia Caucus of Rank and File Educators. He talks to us about organizing the union there, about public sector collective bargaining and labor law in Virginia, etc., etc. After that, we talked to Sakia Royal, a cook for the Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina. We have a fascinated conversation with her about organizing in the public sector in a state where public sector collective bargaining is banned by people who love freedom. <laughs> We talked to her about that uh, after our conversation with Patrick. So first, let's go ahead and jump to that chat with Patrick. We've got Patrick Corte. He is an educator in Virginia, a member of the Virginia Education Association, and VCOR, the Virginia Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take it away on this interview uh, as a former high school history teacher and a former staffer for the Alabama Education Association. Uh, Definitely excited to have Patrick on the show. So before we dig into what all is going on in Virginia, just if you don't mind, could you give us a little bit of background? Tell us your story, who you are, what you do, and how you got involved in the labor movement. Sure. Um, I'm a secondary history and social studies teacher here in Virginia. Um, Relatively new to teaching, but not new to the labor movement and to community organizing. Um, In terms of how I found myself into the labor movement, I would say um, a few different roads or streams that converge. One is being a worker in a capitalist society and having the experience of working uh, low-wage jobs, mostly in the 
service industry, um, though I've also worked in agriculture and uh, a few other sectors. And, um, you know, across the board, non-union labor. And I come from a family that's uh, very supportive of unions, um, you know, and I have a picture of my mom on my wall when she was out on strike um, as a teacher. She was a teacher as well. Um, and so for me, it, f- that was from the 70s. For me, I always associate <laughs> uh, education and labor movement in my mind. It's deeply personal in that sense because, um, you know, both my parents, um, my mom was a, a career teacher. My dad taught for um, some time. And um, you know, my mom being involved in her union local and getting it started and, um, also being part of a public sector strike, um, in the seventies. So that, that's sort of some of the things that come to mind in, in terms of how I found my way to all this stuff is other, uh, facets to it, I would say, which is, you know, it's the same reason I'm interested in history and social studies as I see a lot of the things happening in our world in terms of the exploitation of the working class by global capitalism of, you know, racial and transphobic and patriarchal oppression that we see in our society. And um, of course the climate crisis um, and wanting to um, be a part of helping to change that. And I think the labor movement is, uh, the, the cornerstone of that project. Absolutely. And I uh, appreciate the, the background. You, obviously you get it honestly. Um, and you are, we're, we're two peas in a pod. Uh, a lot of your story really resonates with me. And I got to say, um, I believe that educators make such a difference in, in the way they change lives and, and really shape communities and shape futures. And so where the labor movement and education intersect is such an important part of our society and our economy. So I want to take it from there. If you could tell us a little bit about VCOR, Virginia Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, of which you're a member. I'd be happy to. Um so VCOR, well, you know, our namesake is inspired by um, the Chicago Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, um, which is uh, a rank-and-file caucus inside the Chicago Teachers Union, um, which currently hold leadership. Um, I'd say we're inspired by CORE and, and their experience, but, you know, we're also our own project and dealing with our own situation down here in Virginia and have a different series of challenges and, um, you know, our, our own sort of spin on things. Um, but VCOR um, is a rank and file caucus. Um, some of your listeners may be familiar with this uh, historically, but in, in case they're not, you know, there's a tradition within the labor movement of sort of the most, um, the most progressive segment of the of the union movement getting itself organized inside the union in order to change the practice of of the union organization in a more democratic bottom up fashion that is uh, more militant and more um, aligned with uh, a, like a politics of liberation you might say and this goes back you know there's a of course many different historical examples of this and present examples, like in the Teamsters, you have the Teamsters for a democratic union. That's sort of an analogous 
style formation. Um, historically, you had the rank and file group inside the New York Teachers Union, which was like a, um, a project started by like the Communist Party in the 1920s inside the teachers union there. And they organized the rank and file group to sort of transform the internal culture of their teachers union. So there's like a whole history of this stuff that, that goes back um, over a hundred years. Um, so that's sort of the tradition that we're working from and building upon. But in terms of what we encountered was, you know, our, our union um, when we started V Corp, which is um, the Virginia Education Association, right? Uh, an affiliate of the NEA. Yeah. Yeah. So to, I guess to maybe provide some background, um, our state union is the Virginia Education Association. So that's a, 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 its parent union would be the NEA, the National Education Association. And then my local is the REA, the Richmond Education Association. So that's my uh, local union. And you know, when we started this project, um, we first, you know, a a lot of things were happening. There was the red for ed upsurge. Um, there had just been the, um, CTU strike in Chicago, um, in, uh, 2019. And in Virginia, there was a, a group called Virginia Educators United, which was attempting to sort of be part of that statewide upsurge that was happening in, um, you know, West Virginia and Oklahoma and to sort of build upon that. So we were in this milieu and these were the things that were happening. And we saw that um, our union had become used to being a very, uh, what we would call a business union or a service union, right? right. Um, they might, they, they would lobby for changes in the law um, they would provide discounts on different services, um, but they weren't really focused on building rank and file workers power in our school buildings um, on the shop floor, so to speak. Right. And that's what we were interested in doing and providing an educational space you know, that could um, get uh, VEA members the skills that they need to feel confident in talking with their colleagues and challenging some of the very unjust and exploitative conditions that we deal with in our, in our school buildings. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really uh, inspiring to see that kind of organizing happening in the South because, you know, like you and, and your sisters and brothers in Virginia, I was also inspired by Chicago and, and the caucus of rank and file educators there, the historic strike in 2012 and, and then, of course, as you mentioned, the Red for Ed uh, walkout wave that happened across the country, uh, particularly in, in red states. Uh, so, you know, that's I, I think that's such a powerful thing that we have rank and file educators in a place like Richmond and a place like Virginia coming together and, and organizing as some of the more. Uh, you know, the militant minority, you might say, uh, the folks who are committed to bringing change and not just happy to go along to get along and, and maintain the status quo, which I think uh, it's easy for for that to happen with established labor organizations. So now that you've told us a little bit about V-Corps, uh one of the things I was interested in 
there has been a recent change in Virginia law. And uh, unlike many places in the South, Virginia now has the opportunity for collective bargaining at the school district level. And I was wondering if you could tell us uh, a little bit about that and uh, what has happened in Richmond. Sure. Um, I would be happy to give you the rundown on what's changed with collective bargaining and and maybe even a few notes on sort of um, the strengths and limitations of of, of this. Right. Um, But, you know, in, in December, actually, let me back that up on, on May 1st, uh, 2021, uh, which incidentally is international workers day or may day, um, our state legislature, reversed the ban or prohibition on public sector collective bargaining, but they didn't provide sweeping legalization. So in other words, it's left up to each uh, municipality and the appropriate governing body to decide whether to allow collective bargaining or not. So while collective bargaining, that is the union negotiation of public sector contracts is no longer illegal. It can only be made legal if you win, for example, in our case, a vote from the school board. So our union district district by district, and this is going to create, you know, a patchwork of union rights throughout the state. And and I think that's a real drawback of this law, but it is, I think uh, a a step forward nonetheless. Um, But that just to be, upfront and clear about the limitations of this. So um, we, you know, started organizing for this as soon as um, this was announced. Um, And the way that we did it was, you know, we led an authorization card campaign um, going building by building and sort of connected our authorization card campaign to building the union, right? Like really using it, not just, Hey, sign the card, um, union, yes or no, but using it as an opportunity to engage our fellow workers about what are the issues you're facing in your job, in your school building, in your work, work site, right? And um, to really bring those together and synthesize them. And then we introduced a resolution to our school board. Um, it was like there was back and forth and uh, we did get a watered down resolution compared to the original one that was put forward. Um, but that's the one the school board voted on in an eight to one vote, um, which basically provides um, a, a, a limited bargaining for the first three year contract. So the first round of bargaining um, will be limited to two bargaining issues per party. And then after that first three-year contract expires, uh, it'll go to open bargaining um, on a year-to-year annual contract basis. Um, to my knowledge, uh, what constitutes one issue was not defined in the resolution. So mm-hmm. that could create openings in terms of the sure. negotiation yeah. process. Um, but that's what it is. And so we won that resolution and then we went forward, you know, we were well above um, the 30% mark for um, several categories of workers, um, which included, you know, workers on the teacher pay scale, um, safety and security, school nutritional specialists, um, 
And so we, those were the categories that went up for, um, that we had, they had the union election for, um, and we won, um, by like a 99% margin, six wow. workers voted against the union. Um, ever, so, um, it's a very, is a, you know, a, a resounding yes, uh, to the union. We're still organizing, um, with, uh, custodial, um, and transportation, um, staff, um, and, and um, office associates as well, like, a um, off, uh, administrative and office associates. So those are the three categories that would be up next for a union election. Um, but you know, the hope, our hope, both, I, I would say, you know, I can't speak for the REA. I'm just a rank and file member of the REA, but as an REA member and as a member of VCOR, certainly hope that we can build a wall to wall union that unites teachers, paraprofessionals, bus drivers, cafeteria staff, custodial workers, you know, as one big union. In the election that y'all had, what would you attribute your success to? Uh, yeah, it's it's a good old-fashioned union organizing. No, you know, we, we didn't have a slick campaign. It was a very, uh, like, guerrilla campaign uh, of, you know, we had, we didn't have a lot of staff. Um, we just built a solid organizing core. Um, like was mentioned uh, earlier, a militant minority, right? We had a solid, um, dedicated core of organizers that were, you know, in the parking lot talking to our colleagues about the union and about collective bargaining rights um, who were in our work sites, you know, at lunch in the cafeteria on lunch duty, you know, uh, in getting any, any extra time we could get using those opportunities to talk with our colleagues about um, not just why collective bargaining would be an improvement for our situation, but why we need a union and what type of union, we want and to go, you know, to tie in where VCOR comes into play, we have a vision of a democratic bottom up member controlled union that's not afraid to fight and that's not afraid to put forward what we would call a class struggle unionist vision, meaning we see education workers as part of a broader working class struggle and not somehow separate or in some ivory tower disconnected from the struggles of warehouse workers at Amazon, Starbucks workers, you know, right. work in the espresso machine or, you know, work in the counter uh, from UPS workers, you know, whatever, whoever it might be. So that, that, and we really were talking about that and connected it with, you know, there's a, a tale of two education unionisms here. And uh, many of us were very inspired by some of the Latin American education workers movements, mm. which saw themselves uh, in a, in a special position as educators, right. With a certain degree of trust or potential to earn trust in a community. And the question is, do you sort of position yourself outside of your school community as, you know, some savior or crusader, right. Or do you position yourself as a part of that community, Right. Part of a, a working class community um, and really being at the service of that community. And so I think the latter is obviously what we trying to advance and, you know, just beginning to. But that's what we were inspired, inspired by and um, what we've been trying to mobilize both our colleagues and the broader community around. 
connect with your colleagues, talk about the issues, um, read some history if you can, yeah. and, um, and, and get moving from there. And don't be discouraged that, it, you know, it will take time to win a majority to your side. And in the South, we have um, a particularly difficult and long struggle ahead. Hmm. Patrick Corte, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Folks, we've been listening to Patrick Corte. He is a, an educator in Richmond, Virginia, a member of the Virginia Education Association and the Virginia Caucus of Rank and File Educators. All right, folks, we are with Sekia Royal. She is the president of UE, the United Electrical Workers Local 150, representing public and private sector employees in North Carolina. She is a cook for the Department of Health and Human Services of North Carolina. Uh, Sekia, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So let's start off with uh, your your journey to the labor movement. What was it that made you decide to become a union member, to join the union, and and then to become active and and you know uh, be an active participant in your union? Well, um, what first made me decide to join a union is of the all the favoritism and um, bullying and retaliation that was going on in my department in my particular um, state hospital that I worked in. Um, we had some supervisors and, and so even directors in the hospital that were participating in retaliation and bullying. And one of our, one of my good coworkers got fired, you know, with um, based on lies and, you know, them, having people write false statements. And so that got me fired up. That got me fired up. Um, they, The UE Local 150 had a rally on the city hall steps to talk about the injustices in, in DHHS, and that was the day I signed up, and that was back in 2015. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you've been a member of UE Local uh, 150 for about seven years. Did you have a history yeah. with, with unions or uh, anything like that before being a member of UE 150? Um, no, I didn't. I really um, can honestly say that I was very green to the to the injustices of the world, you know, you would, mm. when you're constantly working with your head down and not really paying attention, you know, until it happens to you. And so, to answer that, no, I was never familiar or had any affiliation with the union until then. None of none of your family were, were members. None of my family members or anything um, were members. The unions were not big in my part. I grew up in a small town, Kansas. Mm. And so unions was not a big talk, you know, um, growing up. So, no, it wasn't. Right, right. And and I uh, similarly grew up in a, in a small town, not in Kansas, but in Alabama. And I am only aware of one of my family members who has ever worked in a union, um, worked in a union environment, and... Um, the rest of my family are, are, are generally kind of 
anti-ish union, but this and and, and they're all really conservative for whatever reason, um, including the guy who is <laughs> who was a member of the Teamsters and speaks very highly of being in uh, of unions as far as they are good for workers, but he hasn't he hasn't quite um, you know figured out uh, uh, that conservative politicians want to uh, destroy him. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I really believe that it was kind of a good thing that I didn't have any familiar, familiarity with unions um, because of the type of union that we have. Um, we don't have a traditional union. We have a member's land union, so decisions are made from the bottom up. Work is done from the bottom up. We do not have a paid, uh, uh, I guess, um, a person that kind of negotiated union. Yeah, we do have, we do have space staff, but we have union, um, or, I guess, um, negotiators and things like Mm. that. Any work that needs to be done, um, we kind of train up our members and and they do the legwork and our, and our, um, organizer just, you know, kind of guides us through. Right, right. Talk to us some about uh, about that. How how has it worked for you being in uh, uh, being in in the UE? You know the. The UE is is like you said it, it is kind of a, a different union than, than than some. There is certainly much more of a, a an emphasis on on being member run, on being democratic, on not relying so much on on staff. How has your membership and and including yourself uh, responded to that type of organizing? Um, we have responded, I believe, quite well. Um, you know, it's very intimidating at first, you know, when you come from not having any type of union background and, you know, you're just kind of speaking up on your own behalf. Um, but, you know, UE is really good about training up for the members and, and, and also it has empowered a lot of people, um, knowing that they can actually fight their own fight, you know, learning the different steps that it takes and how to, to um, maneuver around bosses and, you know, just training people up and giving them the knowledge to fight for themselves has been very empowering. Uh, you, you've mentioned training a couple of times. What are some of the trainings that uh, the UE, that your union gives its members, that the members give each other? Well, we, um, you know, a lot of our, um, a lot of our organizing is, you know, grassroots. We kind of do, um, you know, person to person, passing flyers, um, talking to uh, legislators and different things like that. And so, um, I forgot the question, Lord. What, what, uh, what, what are some of the trainings that, that y'all give your members? So we just give them basic, yes, sir. So we just give them basic, um, we start off with basic union training, um, you know, the role of the uh, executive board, um, what it is to be a steward, you know, how stewards work and how important they are in the workplace, and, you know, training on gathering information and documentation, different things like that is what the kind of smaller um, trainings that we start our new members off with. In North Carolina, 
collective bargaining by public sector employees has been banned since 1959. So y'all are having to organize in an environment where it is illegal to collectively bargain with your employer, um, with with the state, uh, with the municipal governments. What is it like organizing in that environment, keeping membership up and engaged and fighting on fighting on issues without being able to rely on the formal collective bargaining process. Um, it's it's been it's been a, a, a tough fight here in the South. You know, like you uh, mentioned, collective bargaining has been banned since 1959. You know, in the Jim Crow era, where you know the South is still traditionally uh, a lot of prejudice going on, prejudice is going on, you know, so to speak. And, um, and so it's been, it's, it is sometimes it's a very hostile environment and we, we encounter a lot of workers that just don't know their basic rights as, you know, as workers, you know, they feel, they know that collective bargaining is illegal or not illegal, but banned. You know, there is, it's not illegal, but it's banned. And so with that language being on the books, it's um, very intimidating for some people to speak up or step out because in, re- in fear of retaliation or, you know, they just don't want to be a, have a target from the boss on their back. So it's, it's been kind of hostile, but it's been um, the way we have to organize. It's, like I said, it's very empowering. Because you have to learn these things for yourself. You have to um, kind of get in the trenches and make phone calls and send in emails, you know, kind of. And, like, before, for instance, with DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, is where I work, um, we don't have collecting bargaining, but we have had meetings and, um, and you know, communication with the DHHS leadership in, North, in Raleigh that, you know, um, we have meet and confers with them every quarter. So even though we don't have a contract to negotiate, they still sit at the table and pretend to listen to our issues and um, and, and, and try and pretend that they're going to try to solve them. So um been kind of tough, you know, and it's really a big need for collective bargaining and organizing unions in the South, you know, just because of the environment. Um, You know, in the South, traditionally, they have a a higher amount of black and brown workers. And so um, they're more discriminated against, I would say, than others. Um, Like, for instance, North Carolina, we have some of the lowest wages in the country right now, um, at minimum wage at seven twenty five an hour. Mm. But North Carolina gives the biggest uh, corporate tax breaks to companies moving in, moving their companies into North Carolina. So they gave over $10 billion last year just in tax breaks to some of the bigger corporations like Amazon that has moved in area in the last year. So, I mean, you know, in, in, in a sense, North Carolina is is um, exploiting their workers 
by allowing these companies to come in, um, giving them all this money, and yet still and in the country. You know, that's just one of the reasons why um, we feel like collective bargaining is very um, necessary in the South. You know, we have a lot of environmental injustices here in the South as far as, you know, dumping. You know, we have a lot of hog farms and chicken farms here in North Carolina that they, um, the Department of Labor is not uh, forcing them to keep their uh, waste con- contained. You know, um, we had a couple of major hurricanes down here in North Carolina a couple of years back, and we had big issues with the hog pens uh, um, overspilling and environmental issues with that. You know, Duke Energy is one of the biggest dumpers of North Carolina. You know, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say on purpose, but they are not being careful with the environment. And some of them are, have a lot of contaminated water down here because of the dumping of Duke Energy and the hog farms and, you know, um, things like that. Right, right. Uh, and, I don't and, know, there's just a lot. No, no, yeah, that's that's totally right. And you mentioned earlier the that the... Um, the ban on collective bargaining is 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 in some sense a vestige of of Jim Crow and and discrimination and this is something that that not enough people certainly outside of the labor movement very few people outside of the labor movement are aware of this and not enough people inside of the labor movement are aware of the fact that much a lot of the attacks on labor on organized labor on unions are derivative of attacks on black folks and minorities the right to work was explicitly pushed forward as a racist project um and and i've got this article open from dissent magazine they said that a key driver of the right to work movement beginning in the 30s was texas businessman and white supremacist Vance Muse, who hated unions in part because they promoted the brotherhood of workers across racial lines. Um, and in his advocacy for right to work, he, he said that if right to work was not implemented, then white women and white men will be forced into organizations with... Uh, and, you know, forgive me, black African apes whom they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. And this is, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that people were saying against unions as they were pushing legislation to try to destroy us. And this is something that Martin Luther King recognized in the uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. He said in an address to the AFL-CIO that the labor hater and the labor baiter is virtually always a twin headed creature spewing anti-Negro epithets from one mouth and anti-labor propaganda from the other mouth. And this is, you know, that that's an important thing to 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 pull out and 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 to emphasize is is that, you know, the fight against labor has has always been a fight to divide working people 
along racial and gender and, and any other line that you can imagine, other than the dividing line of class. <laughs> That's the one line that they don't want us to understand, is that there's a difference between, you know, our position and our boss's position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and so you, you mentioned... Um, you know some of the unique ways that you have to conduct your organizing the the unique ways that you have to to advocate for yourself and organize for yourself because you can't collectively bargain and um and and you have had some success in that you have been able to to win gains for workers in North Carolina in in UE local 150 can you talk to us about some of the things that y'all been able to win for your members Oh, yes. Um, so uh, we can go back as far as 2017. We can start um, just there. Uh, so in 2017, you be on 51, uh, $15 minimum wage for state employees. And then the, the following year, you know, of course, they had to um, pay as less people as possible. So they left out part-timers. And they left out some other um, people, and so we doubled back on them, and we won their fifteen dollars an hour as well. Uh, we've won uh, in the city workers. We've won um, recently in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina, just um, recently won their minimum wage of twenty dollars an hour for city workers. Um, before our campaigns got started. Um, they, there were some city workers who were getting paid as low as $12 an hour. Wow. And um, we had, we wanted to 15 a couple of years ago, and then we wanted to 16.50 back in 2020. And now we um, have one for the city of Charlotte, minimum wage of $20 an hour for city workers. We've won them, um, you know, they were in their, in their insurance package. You know, getting them to not have to pay a premium in some of our cities. During the pandemic, we launched our, what we, uh, what is the Safe Jobs, Save Lives campaign along with the Southern Workers Assembly. And, um, we were able for our, for our DHHS workers, we were able to win, um, PPE equipment. We were able to win, um, Hazard pay of time and a half. We were um, able to waste, able to win sick leave of eighty hours due to COVID during that campaign. And in the cities, we were able to get some. It was a different, a different, a difference in between some of the cities. Um, like I believe Greensboro got a five percent COVID pay. Um, we went winning different things um, for different cities. You know, we have to launch separate campaigns because they're, you know, they don't all follow the same guidelines. You would think a city worker in Raleigh had the same pay or even or at least the same set of guidelines and rules to go by in the city of Durham. But, you know, all each of their cities run their, you know, their cities a different way. So we had to come up with different campaigns for each city. So, um, We've been able to, like I said, win hazard pay. We've been able to win a step pay plan in the city of Greensboro and Charlotte. 
um, based on the years of service. So when they started working people, started um, giving people the 1650 hour two years ago, we were able to increase the pay of the workers that had been there um, based on their years of experience. So that the people coming in the door wasn't making the same amount as the people that had been there for 10 years. And right now we're working on that within DHHS as well. That's a. Um, you mentioned that that at one of those places, the minimum wage was prior twelve dollars an hour, and then they went to in Charlotte, it was to twenty dollars an hour. That's a big deal to be. I mean, to be able to do that without, um, w- without the formal process of collective bargaining, which I think really underscores the fact that the that the unions. And collective bargaining are are not some like a uh, um, it's not one size fits all, and there are ways to get around obstacles that the government or the boss puts in front of you to to be able to win for yourself, and 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 the thing that is going to win for you whether or not you've got a a collective bargaining agreement or, or anything like that is 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 the organization of your workers how organized are your members how dedicated are they to one another and to the fight and to their community that's going to be the dividing line it seems to me between are you going to get a good contract or are you not? Or are you going to rather? Are you going to to win or not? Absolutely. And I just want to point out that that um, increase in Charlotte from twelve to twenty dollars an hour that happened over several years. I want to say we started our campaign like um, was back in twenty sixteen, and like I said, we made small steps. But for um, I think that for it to go from sixteen fifty an hour and up to twenty dollars in in just in these two years, that definitely was a big victory. And 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 how they won that was constantly leafleting workers, getting them aware of you know the issues, and getting them talking, going to the city manager's office, demanding meetings, going to city hall with banners and and and, and um, getting on the on the road to speak. And, you know, just playing with the people and the community. And the community support is one of the biggest things that our union has. That's fantastic. Because, you know, we always say that uh, workers' workers' issues are, you know, the community issues. Mm. And vice versa. Sakia Royal, uh, that's as good a place as any to end it. Um, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to be talking to Sakia and Patrick Corte on a panel at Labor Notes on organizing the South. Uh, Sakia, I really look forward to meeting you at Labor Notes and talking some more. So thank you guys for um, taking your time to listen to you know what you know the issues that we have here in North Carolina and um organize the south yep hell That's, yeah thank you great. thank you very much i really appreciate it <laughs> thank you guys y'all have a good evening you yep, too you too bye bye we are going to take another break and we will be right back so don't go anywhere you're listening to the valley labor report see you in a bit 
Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at A. AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Only Union Talk Radio Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you have anything to add, feel free to give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. We are not live, so we will not be able to take it, but you can leave a voicemail and we might take it next week. Uh, we just had a couple of great conversations with some Southern Unionists about organizing in the South. If you missed any of that, any of our conversation with history and social studies educator in Virginia, Patrick Corte, and Department of Health and Human Services cook, Sakia Royal, if you missed any part of that, or our conversation with Jonah Furman about labor notes and the convention, you missed any part of that, you can always go to our YouTube and our Facebook and our podcast feed, and you'll be able to find all of it. You'll be able to find all of it. So don't worry if you miss something. Just find us online, and you'll be able to go back and listen. We've got a chat next with uh, Scott Eric of Unionly about the fight against labor across the United States, in states across the U.S., and uh, the way that, and one way, of course, uh, not the only way, but one way that unions can insulate themselves against uh, some attacks by the boss. So let's go ahead and play that. All right, folks, we have got Scott Herrick on the line, founder and CEO of Unionly, Teamsters represented Unionly. Um, and uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we, we wanted to talk some about some of the laws that have been um, that have been either passed or have been kicked around in state legislatures across the country that are banning dues deduction um, from paychecks of, of workers. And so talk to us about some of those laws and, and how they are affecting unions in, in those states. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the most aggressive one we've seen is coming out of West Virginia, where it was just banned wholesale. Um, and we've had the pleasure and honor of being able to help the uh, West Virginia Fraternal Order of Police kind of recover from that. But there's been a lot of legislation around teachers specifically. And uh, Florida, Indiana recently kind of made news. In Indiana, some of it passed. Florida, a lot of it is stalled or either dead. But it just seems like there's an increasing number of, of bills that are going through around payroll deduction specifically or making it harder to join a union or making it harder to uh, you know check everything. 
And to me, overall, the theme is if that's going to increase, which it clearly is, or even outside of state legislature with the biggest union busting tactic being uh, the cutting of payroll deduction dues, why not get ahead of that and remove the biggest tactic and biggest weapon that uh, employers have against unions and have have individual organizations set up their own due systems. So I think to me, as things shift in that direction, uh, you know, payroll deduction dues was you know established a long time ago. Awesome. Uh, but now as things have changed, it seems like it needs to be a change in thought around how that's done, where unions can take control of their financial destiny and just get ahead of the curve uh, either you know, we, we've helped reactively where they've had their their payroll deduction shut down and they've called and said, hey, well, how, what, what do we do? And they're kind of scrambling, um, which we're happy to help with. But it's like, why not get ahead of the curve and just take control of, of finances? Right. And didn't uh, wasn't it Kroger that stopped in Texas, stopped payroll? Like just stopped giving the union the, the the deduction from the payroll at some point, like during negotiations, which I'm fairly certain is illegal. But didn't didn't that <laughs> did that happen, or am I, am I misremembering? It, it sounds familiar. You know, I don't know enough details to talk on that. It sounds pretty familiar and not too surprising. Um, I know we've helped a lot of uh, nurses unions through the OPI. OPEIU uh, with that, where they've done similar things and just said, okay, you have, you know, 24 or 48 hours to respond or, um, yeah, Kroger specifically, I, it sounds familiar, uh, but I, I don't know enough on it to, to speak on it. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, we've okay, had, so this uh, is actually, it looks like, it looks like this happened quite a while ago. Uh, December okay. 6, 2020, last week, we notified UFCW Local 455 uh, mm. that with the pay period beginning November 29, we will no longer deduct union dues, initiation <laughs> fees, wow. et cetera, et cetera. Um, Which goes to your point wild. about the power that employers have right. when you're relying on payroll deduction. Because right. if you just uh, totally <laughs> stop the the flow of funds to a union, you know, I mean, that's that's like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, they're done, right? And it uh, it's it's wild to me too. And it, it uh, I actually was talking to a friend of mine who owns a you know very union friendly business here in Seattle, and he was saying, "Well, wait, man, it'd be awesome to work with a system like this to not just say, hey, we want to stop doing it.' He's like, we're happy to do it.'" But he's basically, they have a team of like six people that handles only that, right? So they're basically taking the money and then remitting it to the appropriate uh, locals. And he's like, we're happy to do it, but there has to be a better way that costs us less money, which we could then put back into our, our employees. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting, right? So, I mean, I know that's not necessarily always been part of the conversation where it's just been used as such a weapon. But to me, it overall, it seems like, if the employer doesn't enjoy doing it, it costs them a lot of money and time that could go back to employees. If uh, the employees don't know it's happening or they don't have control of it uh, with either the, the checkoff or the authorization, um, and then uh, the union has the possibility of just being defunded immediately, like why not do something else? <laughs> and now the emergency response type transition you could imagine, I mean, anybody that has to do anything in, in a rushed manner, you could imagine that that, that, that presents some difficulties. What, uh, you know, what has been your experience in the sort of emergency transition? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess how to, so I, uh, glass half full, fortunately, throughout my life, I've had a lot of scenarios like that where, uh, you know, you can kind of, when you talk to somebody, you can kind of spot 
something's not right, I guess you could say. And so I've talked to some people who called in and we started talking and you could tell they're pretty frantic and it's like, Hey, what's, what's going on um, to get down to it. And the beauty of that is it's one, it's kind of saying, Hey, we're here for you and on your side and we can do this. in I mean, 24 hours tops. Right. Um, and I think a lot of times when, you know, there's not as a fear of technology or people just are getting into a system they don't know about, right. Where they're saying, how, you know, how do we, how can we possibly replace this whole thing, you know, in, in, in this period of time. Uh, but really, I mean, we could have everything set up in an hour. Right. But um, I like to say 24 hours just because, um, but that can all happen. We can have more help with the communications side of it, emailing people with tracking. Um, I think overall it's uh, it, it actually, uh, years ago was a uh, certified grief counselor uh, through a local hospital hospital here as part of a program I helped with. And so I think that training helped uh, as well of saying, Hey, <laughs> you know, you're, you're going through it right now, which I, I get, you know? And I think step one is, is saying, Hey, you, you, know, you want to hear people out always in general, right? Listening is great. I recommend everybody try it out more listening, <laughs> um, you know, shout out to listening. Um, but Within that, it's saying, hey, okay, I hear you. What's going on? We're on your side. You know, it's sure it's the technology, it's all that. But to me, that's always an element that I pride myself in is saying, hey, we're, we're on your team and you have people here who actually, you know, care and they're here to help. So, and now you can get the, you can get the, the system set up in 24 hours, but how long does it, how long has it taken the union to actually transition all of their members to, to that system, uh, in, in the sort of emergency response situa- situation? I think the craziest one we saw the fastest was, um, uh, in Hawaii. There's a nurses union there where the same day they got the majority of, people to make their payment that day um so you know and then over the course of a few days i think i think it was a couple days that they got everybody they were on it they had it rocking i mean i think it depends right but um pretty quickly and then the first few we helped with and then they went back to negotiations and allowed them to stay together and they said hey well good news we have a new contract but bad news we have to turn the system off and i said well why why did you know? Like, oh, well, we part of the new contract is payroll deduction. And I said, well, why? And they said, oh, well, guess we hadn't thought of that. So I think it's that's what this was like two years ago, right? Where I think it's just so ingrained of like this is what you do. And they said, well, damn, yeah, we'll think about that in the future. <laughs> so that's what kind of put me on to just the overall like ideology of the whole process, right? And how things are ingrained, where it's I've kind of been you know, a little uh, sensitive to talk about this until now, right. To really learn kind of the process, learn what's going on. And, and, and now that the threat seems greater than ever, it seems like the right time to talk about it, right. To say, Hey, why are people doing this? Why not think of something else? Right. So that's kind of the long answer to, to that uh, question. Um, But basically then those people we helped with, then they said, okay, well, we don't need the service anymore because we've gone back to payroll deduction. So, Hopefully they don't get put into the same situation uh, a few years down the road. But I mean, you know, uh, fool me, fool me once, right? So, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, and the you know that's pretty amazing that they were able to do that in, in such a short period of time. But I imagine for them that was a very stressful short period of time. And you know, there you can have a much more you know a much more leisurely, um, calm uh, <laughs> transition if you're not yeah. literally worried about funding your entire operation. Um, mm-hmm. At, yeah. in you know. And, and I think the great thing uh, to echo a point you made earlier is knowing if if they're working with you guys at Union Lee, that y'all will be advocates for them. It's more than just uh, you know numbers on a spreadsheet. You're really mm-hmm. there to support the union through the transition yep. and make it yep. you know as seamless as possible so that they can continue to do the work for their membership. You got it. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's and I like to say that I like to say, you know, talk is cheap, right? Anybody can just say that, but uh, ask anybody we work with, right? I take great pride in that, right? Where if I'm going to say something, uh, you know, better believe I'm going to back it up. So, um, you know, and that's that's really why we do this. And, you know, if you're going to do anything, you know, if, if you can make an impact and really help people, that's that's what we're trying to do. So. Absolutely. And and y'all are helping uh, y'all are helping several unions uh, across the U.S. Can can you tell us again? I, I know that you did last time, but ha- how many unions and and uh, membership based organizations are y'all working with right now? Uh, it's getting it's close to close to five hundred uh, individual locals around the country, um, wow. ranging from you know forty members to fifty thousand members individually. So, um, yeah. We, you know, anybody, wow. we take, take all comers. Right. So, um, it's, uh, I think it's, it's like anything. It's a, it's a trust play, right. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, we first start out and people are like, Hey, who, who is this guy? Why should we talk to them? Um, sure. But I think as we've, you know, words gotten out, it's like, Oh, they actually are here to help us. And, um, we've been fortunate to have the, you know, success and work with the people we do, but obviously there's, there's more to help with. So. Do you have any estimate on the number of union members that, that pay dues through unionly? Um, I could get back to you on that. It's not, not necessarily it, right now. I mean, we could look at the overall transactions, but it's, I want to say it's around uh, three to 400,000. Roughly. Uh, maybe that might be high. That might be a little bit high, but it's, it's over, over a hundred thousand, I'd say. So, um, that's fantastic. One, two, three hundred thousand or so union members across four hundred <laughs> locals, um, I, I, across almost five hundred locals. You said across almost five hundred mm-hmm. locals. That's pretty impressive. Um, that's pretty impressive, and I think you know the the that you know being able to service that many people um, and and them continuing to stay with y'all. Uh, I, I think you know that speaks to a certain amount of, of trust and ability to perform. So um, and and we've we've certainly sure. been happy uh, with. Yeah, with what definitely we've appreciate the yeah. work that you do on our behalf. Okay. And oh, absolutely, it's cool. So I need to get some. Of the, I need to get some of the merch myself. You know, <laughs> get, the, get the hat. You know, get, just stay uh, tuned the for the new shirt. shirt that's coming. Okay, all right. Uh, I yeah. like it. I like it. We also one thing to put out too is we we also uh, have a very strict data confidentiality policy, um, mm-hmm. and that we also explicitly state that we do not uh, uh, share, sell, or profit off of data. Right? If if you want to go to the hilarious part of most websites, if the question is do you uh, uh, sell or profit off off of our data, which is a yes or no question, right? What you'll get usually is like a sixteen page 
you know, uh, soliloquy on the world of communication and the internet, and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't say no. Right. <laughs> right. And then it's a question <laughs> if you're not saying no. So to me, I, I've always thought that's just ridiculous. So I say, we, we say, no, we do not. So perfect. Fantastic. And that's important to folks. And, you know, um, we, everything's confidential. We don't uh, share, sell, or profit off information as well. So um, we're, we, we really mean what we're doing, you know. Scott Herrick, founder and CEO of Teamsters Represented Unionly. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Yep. All right, folks, that is going to be it for us on the radio today. But just a reminder, leave us a voicemail, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. If you've got anything to add to the program, give us your bad boss story, organizing wins, questions, topic suggestions, anything like that. All can go in our voicemail box. You can buy our hat or give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. But find us online. We have got a, we've got two overtimes. We've got double overtime. We went crazy. We went crazy this week, and we recorded two overtimes. First, <clears throat> first we talked to Chris Townsend about the importance of William Z. Foster and his writings, what they meant for workers then and what they mean for workers now. Fascinating conversation. Really loved it. And then a more topical, relevant conversation, but no less, uh, uh, certainly no less important, but uh, a, a, a more topical conversation. Uh, we talked to Ashley Little, research assistant, <clears throat> Ashley Little, research assistant at the Guttmacher Institute with the Guttmacher Employees United about their organizing efforts and about the, frankly, uh, smear against them in The Intercept last week by Ryan Grimm. Very disappointing article. But we're going to be talking about, we're going to be doing both of those things in overtime. So find us online. All power to the workers.